So I have the honor of sharing today. As you know, last week we pivoted to talk about grief and uh, what not to say and how to really be with others. And here we are in a conversation about marriage and sex. And um, I still feel okay with having this conversation today. Um, And usually when you write a message about, when you write a message, you you feel like you need to raise a need. Like you tell some personal story or statistics, talk about the social state of affairs. Um, this one, this conversation can fit any one of those categories, but, uh, but I'm just going to let the scripture stand for itself. Um, we'll find ourselves somewhere in there. And I do believe uh, there is and always is good news, especially when you read the written word about the spoken word, Wait, a spoken word about the living word, Jesus. My brain has gone to grief brain, so have patience with me. So uh, scripture is this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him to test them. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Well, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his wife and mother to be united. I'm sorry, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it's not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another one, another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this word should accept it. That's God's word for us. So count it up. We've got marriage, divorce, sex, and sexuality, a bit on gender, singleness. All a conversation that Jesus is having. And over, I think specifically, the last 20 plus years, this, these conversations have been some of the most socially explosive conversations and divided, divisive conversations. They've also conversely been some of the most untalked about conversations and swept under the rug conversations. Um, there's a polarity even in that. And sometimes it's the most oversimplified conversation and therefore hurtful. Very hurtful conversation. For almost all of us, it's very personal. It's a very personal conversation uh, that affects us, affects obviously the world, and affects those that we love. I'm sure that you have friends, best friends, close friends, comrades, family members, neighbors, co-workers who are gay 
or lesbian or transgender, etc. You have people in your life that are divorced. You have people in your life who are wanting to be married. People in your life that you love who don't want to be in their marriage. People in your lives who are widowed. Um, you have people in your life who struggle with sexual addiction, lust, and pornography. You have people in your life who allow themselves to get caught up in emotional affairs with people they shouldn't be in affairs with, who either know it or don't know it. There's a lot here. And as I wrote this week and studied it last week, the people pleaser in me, given some of our presuppositions in this conversation and our hard beliefs, wanted to please everyone. And uh, it is a hard message. If there's ever a week you're like, man, I should buy Andy a bowl of pho, this is a week. <laughs> but I do take solace that we're, we're hanging on the words of Jesus. We're just going to hang and talk and walk through the passage. But as Tim Mackey, he's a pastor, he's the co-creator of the Bible Project, which I believe will inform a lot of what the studies will be this, this week in the men's and women's group. Is that right, Jen? Oh, there you are right there. I'm like looking for you. All right. Um, he said this is a conversation that will scandalize us. It's one of those things that will scandalize. It's, it will be an affront to some of our presuppositions about what is good, beautiful, and true. It will. And I've studied different commentaries. I studied France, uh, my Old Testament professor, Janine Brown, N.T. Wright, and I am unabashedly borrowing from Tim Mackey's approach uh, to both the Matthean scholarship, what he's looking at in Matthew, as well as some of his Old Testament scholarship. I just want to name that. Um, I'm, I'm borrowing a lot from his approach because I think it's very helpful. And, and as we talk about approaches, we are going to get into a theology and an orthodoxy about sex and marriage. We are a lot of theology. And I think w when I say that, I want you to know not just our orthodoxy, but my and our approach, our practice, uh, our orthopraxis, how we practice, how we live this out on the front end. Um, how we, how we want to be a ministry to those, to everyone here. And it's simply this, and I wrote a paper given this topic years ago, and I still believe it, that we as a church, we want to welcome uh, and accept all people to come to these doors, to take refuge, to find a home, to be with, to learn from, that everybody is here. We welcome everybody, and, and we want to accept each person and their sacredness, that they're made in the image of God. Like, that's what, that's, that's the common denominator between all of us. That is, that is it. And um, at the same time, we don't affirm every decision that people make. Uh, there's a cultural assumption that if you want to love and accept someone, you have to affirm every one, of their, every one of their decisions or what they say or what they believe. And that actually is very discriminatory if you think about it because people have different values and worldviews. You can love and accept someone without affirming everything they believe. And in fact, if you believe that cultural assumption that to love, to accept, that really undermines what love can be, how great the capacity of love is. Ultimately, I and we want everyone, myself included, to encounter a God who does love us, the God who does change us, and the God ultimately who will judge us, the God who does judge us, will judge me. And that means... If you subscribe to this idea that each person is welcome here and you don't affirm every belief, but we want everybody to have a chance to encounter Jesus, the God of love and change, that it's going to be messy. It's going to be messy. There's going to be conversations that we'll have. And that's a beautiful thing because that's the kind of community that Jesus had around him. 
At the same, at the same time, he's the king, and he, he called people to follow him. And some of us will resonate with what's said today. Some of us will resist. I'm sure this conversation will be inadequate. And I'm here to continue to process. But our goal is to follow Jesus one step at a time. So we're going to go and hear what Jesus has to say. So when Jesus had finished saying these things, verse 1, I'm just going to go through the scriptures again. He left Galilee and went to the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. As I mentioned last week, we are in the last lap of Jesus' ministry. He's heading south from his hometown in Galilee to to Jerusalem. That's my words. Jerusalem (laughs) to suffer and die and rise again. But as he's heading down, leaders know he's coming. So they're sending leaders up. The question, his beliefs, that he's already made explicit in the Sermon on the Mount. Some Pharisees came to test him. N.T. Wright says they came to trap him. A group of leaders come to trap him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And hold on to that phrase, for any and every reason. Great job on the slides, Coco. First time on the slides. What up? Uh, This this topic of divorce was hotly debated in Jesus' day. It's not one of our greatest conversations we have today, but it was in their day. And the reasoning, the grounds for divorce uh, evolved in two schools of thought, two schools of thought. One was by the name of Rabbi Shammai, and one was by the name of Rabbi Hillel. And, And we'll talk about that, but I think to really understand the debate, you need to understand the history of the debate. And, and these rabbis are debating over the law, the Old Testament. And if you know the Old Testament, there are 613 laws or commands found in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. We know the Ten Commandments. There's actually 603 other ones. And uh, one of them, there's only two that are talked about divorce. Two out of 613. And one of them is Exodus 21, verses 10 through 11, that says this. If he, this is the man, marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. Uh, that marital rights has been con- uh, translated conjugal rights. It's, it's sexual intimacy. It's physical intimacy, sexual intimacy. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any pavement of money. Without any payment of money. I'm going to get a drink of water because my words are just slurring. So, first thing we see, elephant in the room, we're going to have a lot of those, polygamy. Polygamy. So, what's up with that? Well, the first thing we can't do is compare ancient Israel to our modern concepts. Uh, As we'll see later on, they don't represent God's moral ideal. But it's helpful to know that Israel grew up in 400 years of oppressive Egypt rule. And they have been indoctrinated and assimilated by their polygamistic practices, where women were acquired and discarded like property. And so God, God gives them these laws to set ancient Israel apart, but he's also meeting them where they are at. God's working with ancient Israel and pushing ancient Israel to greater arenas of love and justice. Because who has the upper hand in the polygamist culture? Men. Right? Men. Whose dignity is being upheld by this command? Is that command up there? It's the woman. If the husband is not providing for his wife, 
if he's neglecting or abusing her and she leaves, who's the one who ended the divorce? He did by not providing. Her sign, her leaving is just a sign that he ended the divorce. This was unfounded in those times. This is God working with ancient Israel at a time where women could be acquired and discarded like property. The issue is, and what we see in Jesus' day, is that that doesn't play out. And we'll, look, we'll get there. Dog ear that. The second law is found in Deuteronomy 24, and this is what's being argued about. And it's one sentence, it's a very long sentence. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. That's the phrase we're going to really talk about. It goes on, and he, he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her may not remarry her. This is law about remarriage. There's a lot of layers there. I'm not going into it because this is not what the debate is about. The debate is about this first phrase. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. This is what Jesus is being asked about. Because what does it mean for a woman to become displeasing to him? What does it mean that he finds something indecent about her? The interesting thing is this phrase here is the only phrase found in all Hebrew literature, much less the Bible. It's the only phrase that there is. And when you write dictionaries, what are you doing when you write a dictionary? You're looking up literature, seeing how it's used, and you're coming up with a term. So you have a phrase here that's only found in one place in all of history in a dead language. So what do you do with that? You debate. You debate. That's what you do. You debate about what it means. Thus, we've entered into the debate. And I mentioned those two schools. So Rabbi Shammai takes into account Exodus 21. He takes into account Exodus 21, and he, and he takes his cue from that idea uh, that you find something indecent about her. And he is, he's come to the conclusion that something indecent about her means sexual immorality. Having marriage with, or having sex with somebody who you're not in covenant with. Hillel had a more open view that said, and he took his cue from some, that something you disliked, who becomes displeasing to him, which then in turn allowed a man to divorce his wife for anything that was displeasing, whether it was physical attraction over time, personality, cooking. There was studies there. I'm not... That feels like very paternal when I say that, but yes. Uh, and who do you think's view won out in that day? In an already patriarchal culture, whose view do you think won out? The Hillel, the hell. I, I remember him, like Hillel, hell. Oh, meaning men could initiate divorce and do so for any and every cause. That's what dominated Jesus' day. The disciples grew up in this culture. That's why they're like, What? where a man could divorce their wife for any reason. The implications are insane. Oppression, subjugation, abandonment. So how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Well, he does a lot of times what he always does, 
as he attacks the root of the issue. He gets to the root of it. He, he, he responds when asked, what's the meaning of marriage? I.e., is it to please men, Jesus? You better agree with us. Are you going to conform? He, he responds to the meaning of life, which duly informs the meaning of marriage. That's how he responds. And he goes back to the beginning, which we spent a lot of time when we started as a church. Haven't you read, he, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has brought together was joined together. Let no one person separate. You know, I've officiated almost 100 weddings, I think, and I've always ended with that phrase. So what's Jesus doing here? He goes to Genesis 1. He quotes within from the first poem in the Bible, God created mankind in God's own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what's the point of him quoting this poem? To understand Genesis, you really have to understand, again, the whole law. Genesis is written in light of the whole first five books. And so when you understand Genesis' place in the first five books, you understand that God gave humanity a command not to make idols. But can God make an idol? Can God make an image? Did God make an image? He sure did. We are his image. We are God's image. We are made in God's image to image God. We are made as two binary opposites, male and female, and that represents the diversity and unity of God, the diversity and triunity of God. There is one humanity, scientifically it's homo sapiens, that consists of two, male and female. And humanity is made in the image of God. This means we have a calling, unlike the rest of creation, to image God, to image God. And one of the ways, note, one of the ways that we can image God is through marital covenant. This is one of the ways, and that's where he goes next. That's where Jesus goes next. He goes from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, God is a God who covenants. He's sacrificial. He's faithful, lasting. He's, he's one who is, commits to the end. It's undying commitment. And Scripture reveals that God gave marriage as one way to image God, to image the way God is, that he's committing, that he covenants with us. And I think most of us, when we look at the original design of marriage, we understand that marital covenant is exclusive, that it's designed to be unbreakable. I think what a lot of us miss uh, is that we're in a creation account, and God's showing us not only that marriage is an exclusive, unbreakable covenant, but it's it's also the ways in which through sexual union that God creates with us and through us. That God is showing how creation uh, unfolds his creative purposes. That's why you see that. That's why God, you find this in Genesis. It's like, oh yeah. It's, it's, it shows who God is as covenant and God as creator. That this is God's creation and humanity is created by God. Uh, God has the ability to create Humanity has ability to procreate. To become one represents marital covenant. To become one also means the ability to create one. That's what's missed a lot. That two come together, become one, 
and creates one. Just like God, the God who generates new life, we image God by generating new life. The one, in, the one becomes two, the two come one, and they create one. And despite social reimaginations, Jesus' words here detail the intent as prescribed by God. Male and female coming together in marital covenant, sexual union as a sign of that covenant, even some could say sacraments, to unify and to create. Covenant creation. What God has brought together, let no one person separate. Okay. And like anything else in creation, humanity's calling is to forego sexual urges and desires to image God this way. And we could spend hours discussing the ramifications about that, the physiology and the spirituality of sex and covenant, but we don't have hours. And we have a lot of questions right now. We have a lot of, but what's? But what about this? But what about that? Yes, that's, that's the prescription. That's ideal. But what about those that fall out of that window? And just so want to breathe, take a sip of water. Genesis, Genesis 3 introduces brokenness, fallenness a less than ideal. And fallenness is multifaceted. It is deeply complex. And in this conversation regarding marriage and sex and sexuality, there's a lot of degrees and different fallenness. There's fallenness about our unmet desires to covenant. Uh, there's fallenness about my spouse or an I abandoning or rejecting the covenant. Fallenness about uh, never making it to covenant, which I just mentioned, or dying, someone, your spouse dying. There's fallenness about the inability to conceive in covenant. There's, there's fallenness of distorted sexual desires, sexual addictions. There's fallenness about same-sex desires. There's fallenness about the renunciation of your own gender and the ever-expanding conversation of the spectrum of gender. And I understand from some of the hands that I see that are all crossed that uh, this can be perceived as a bigoted saying, it's fallen. It's okay. You can have your hands crossed, even if you agree with me. It's okay. I can, it can be described as being bigoted, given our cultural assumptions. I think maybe we can at least agree that if people's desires are to be with or to be somewhere or even to be something or someone else, however, whenever, why ever those desires came to be, that wanting, that desire to, to be with or just to simply be is something else and is different from what is and arguably can be categorized as falling below an ideal. I'm just not trying to insert evil in every one of these manifestations, but it is fallen. And maybe you don't agree with me. Maybe you don't agree that those, any of those categories fallen and fallen. And that's a great opportunity to welcome and love me and not affirm everything that I say, but create, Scott, create space for God to work in my life and know that God will judge me. He will. Um, I'm fallen. We're fallen. The world is fallen. The church is made for the fallen. 
It's made for the fallen. And here's one of the most fallen realities of the church. I'm pendulating. We'll get back there at some point. Is that the church has upheld marriage so high that it has become its own idol. And that displaces so many people within the church. When a church, and the church by and large, focuses so much on marriage or focuses so much on the family, where's your place if you're single? Where's your place if you're gay? Where's your place if you're widow? When we say marriage is the way to be, when we communicate that either with our words or with our actions, it displaces a lot of people in the church. I think, I hope you know enough married people to recognize that, like, it's not the path to enlightenment or greatness. And I hope those people also know that marriage is not about happiness, but it's about another way to, be, to demonstrate Christ-likeness to one another, to be forgiving, to be joyful, to choose to love one another. And sex, it's a lovely gift, but also comes with its own vein of heartache. Even those who, quote-unquote, aren't sinning in sex, there's struggles there. There is. Uh, it requires a lot of effort. And I think uh, as we talk about the idolatry of marriage, we have to also mention the idolatry of kids. Uh, and that's one of those unspoken realities in church. Uh, that parents idolize their kids. They're defined by their successes, and they're also defined by their failures. And uh, when you're a non-parent, that can be really hard for you when the conversation circles around kids all the time. And we cannot and should not identify ourselves by our marriage or by our children, by our singleness or our sexuality. We are defined by God's words to us. We are God's beloved. Fallenness in the church. Here's someone who have a real hard time belonging in the church. Divorcees. Divorcees have a real hard time knowing their place in the church. And whatever the cause of the divorce, whatever it is, whether who's quote-unquote to blame, I'm not trying to introduce a polarity there. I'm just saying however it comes to be, Healing from the pain of divorce uh, requires much. It requires listening and people walking beside you and being with you. It's painful to, to be in covenant and then to not be in covenant. And the church needs to be a place for healing for those uh, that are divorced. Not be stigmatized, not to judge them. And there's varying degrees of way that happens. Somehow, Here's something that happens is like if someone's divorced in the past, but they're married now, or like, hey, they're great. But if someone's going through a divorce, they, get, they can get murdered in the church. See how hard, this is a hard conversation, you know, when we're here. I'm going to pendulate again. Uh, I'm going to actually go further into biblical grounds of divorce because this is part of this conversation. 
Uh, so why then, they asked as the Pharisees, you tell us to read our Bible, you read your Bible. Did Moses command that a man give his wife? Did Moses command that a man give his wife her certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Remember, God's working with ancient Israel where they're at. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So here we have Jesus actually weighing on the debate. He talks about the root issue, but he's also unafraid to give his opinion. Deuteronomy 24 is given as a concession for sexual immorality, that your spouse is having sex with someone else. So what is Jesus doing here? It feels like he can be, he's being conservative. He's actually fighting injustice again. The same injustice that we saw in Exodus, the same injustice he's fighting. It's like, no, you can't give up on your spouse for any and every reason. You fight for your marriage. He's combating the oppression that's happening against women. So the follow-up question for that is, and yeah, I, I don't know if I'm hitting everybody's follow-up question. Is this the only grounds for biblical divorce? Which is uh, an important conversation in the church. Is this the only grounds for divorce? Um, can the marriage covenant be broken for other reasons? What about Exodus 21? How does Jesus feel about Exodus 21? Well, we don't know. He was never in a debate about Exodus 21. This is a debate strictly about Deuteronomy 24. However, we also know that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and to fulfill it, meaning the redemptive heart of God that we found in Scripture is represented in Jesus. So what do I mean? I mean this practically, that there are two common views for biblical grounds of divorce within the church. Just talking strictly within the church. One is that it's only adultery, that you can get divorced only for adultery. Um, and uh, I mean, if there's something else that's happening, you might separate for a while, but you're not allowed to be divorced. There is the other view that, yes, adultery uh, is a means to divorce. But when you look at that, again, Matthew 19, as well as you look at Matthew 5, which is almost repeating verbatim when Jesus talks about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. It's about a man divorcing his wife. Uh, we, we understand that both today, there's sexual morality there that's probably grounds for divorce, but it's about the oppressive culture. Exodus 21 is about fighting for the women, about uh, neglect or abuse. You actually, uh, there's biblical grounds for divorce, for adultery and or unrepentant neglect or abuse. Unfaithfulness. And even abandonment, which Paul talks about. Paul in the New Testament says, if, if you have a spouse that has abandoned you, you're free to go. This unbelieving spouse, which creates greater grounds. He or she is free to go. That's what's said in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. So to believe that it's just only adultery would actually be to be dismissed the New Testament. And uh, again, contextually, Jesus is talking about this principle for any of every reason. He never talked about Exodus 21. So... I think theologically, number two is representative for biblical grounds of divorce. As I say that, I also say this. There can be a lot of interpretations of how people interpret abandonment or neglect or abuse. 
and I can't get into all that, but we are talking about unrepentant, extreme reasons here. And it's, it won't be helpful to me to give like, not this, but this, you know? What is helpful is if you are tempted to be in divorce because of any of these reasons, I think having a community come around you like we talked about in Matthew 18 would be helpful to walk with you, sit with you, listen to you first. Not to tell you what you do, but we don't, in any situation, when you're in a place of desolation, here's a principle. Don't make fast decisions. That is what I would say. Please don't make fast decisions. Marriage is designed by God to be a faithful covenant, which is why the disciples are like, whoa. And verse 10 is about Jesus debriefing with his disciples. There's a long quote there. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, disciples say to him, the situation between a husband and man, this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. It is better not to marry. And I think what's helpful for all of us in that situation is to take hold of this. If you're struggling in your marriage, that is not uncommon. If you feel like, oh, I'm the only one struggling in marriage, you certainly are not the only one struggling in your marriage. And we want to help. We want to walk with you. We want to walk with all people wherever you're at, for sure. But if that's where you find yourself, uh, we would love to serve you. As people who listen, don't have all the answers, but want to love you well. So Jesus essentially gives an illustration to make his point. He's like, yes, it is hard. And he does that by talking about eunuchs. This passage is... It's got a lot. It's got a lot. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. So what is Jesus doing here? He's using an analogy of eunuchs. Does, does everybody, does, I'm going to define quickly what a eunuch is. Uh, in the ancient world, kings uh, practiced polygamy. And they would have male servants to look after their harem or property. All that's vile. Uh, and uh, to do so, uh, to make sure that these male servants wouldn't sleep with their property, they um, castrated them. And I'm not going to define what castrated means. Um, it, it's really selfish. The selfishness of all is like really horrendous. Uh, but what Jesus is pulling from is a eunuch's inability to have sex and procreate. The eunuch's inability. That's, that's the analogy he's using because he's actually describing himself as a eunuch. That's the last one. In fact, there's three descriptions here that Jesus isn't judging at all, that Jesus is using uh, for those who don't have the ability to have sex as described by God, for those who are not in covenant as described by Scripture and God, who will not procreate. He's, he's talking about those who've been made eunuchs, 
Again, that practice uh, happened much more in the Old Testament, though it is unfortunately practiced in some remote areas today. There are those who've been born this way, and there has been a lot of interpretation of this phrasing. I'm not going to define it, but I think it's profound that Jesus leaves it that simple, that he leaves it that openly, that he doesn't define it as any prophet does. He, he leaves it there for us to wrestle with. And remember, Jesus is not prude. He grew up in a very wild culture. And this is a phrase he uses. There are those who are born this way. Again, he's not judgmental. He's simply acknowledging this reality and then naming the goal. And there are those who live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. This is Jesus himself. History acknowledges, was Jesus married? Despite what you read in the Da Vinci Code? Was Jesus married? No. History acknowledges that Jesus is single. Do we think that Jesus lived a fulfilled life? Yes! He probably lived the most fulfilled life. Of, he did live the most fulfilling life that anyone ever could in the history of living. And Jesus is actually acknowledging the beauty and benefit of being single and living freely for the sake of the kingdom. And the kingdom is where life is. That is the goal. That is what informs marriage. That is what actually informs life above marriage. That's what life is about. Living for the kingdom. And history is filled with people who've lived for the kingdom and who aren't married. Courtney, or Courtney, Caitlin and I are reading uh, about Corey Ten Boom right now, the Holocaust survivor, her wonderful life. And history is better for it, for those people who've chosen to live freely and fully for the kingdom. It's not dismissive of marriage, but it's not elevating of marriage either. We all have a higher calling to live for the kingdom. And there's a higher joy to do so that is unfounded anywhere else. So I've, I've kind of talked a lot. And I'm, again, I just want to note that a lot of us probably can be okay with what I said, may resist what I've said. Um, it's definitely inadequate. I know there's more questions. I think the implications are worth noting that according to Jesus, and I want to say this clearly, a biblical marriage is designed for a male and woman to covenant together. Sex is designed for marriage to unify husband and wife as well as for procreation. Biblical grounds for divorce include sexual immorality and extreme unrepentant neglect and abuse. That doesn't mean you wait for it to be horribly done. That means we, we, if, it begin, if you feel the beginnings of it, we want to enter in, as well as abandonment. And anyone, whether they're gay, straight, divorced, widowed, singled, married, not wanting to be married, can live a full life. A lot there. And yes, I clung to my notes a lot. I understand that, and you can give me that commentary. I'll tell you I had to, because I like thought through it a lot. And um, it's a little bit of a dance. You feel like you're surfing a wave. You don't want to fall off. But maybe you think I did. Here's the deal. I'm sure there's going to be follow-up conversations with me 
And I hope this conversation is that we have with one another. And what I would say is be kind and listen, create space for others. What a great opportunity to love someone else, especially if you disagree with them. Especially. Because in the end, there is no male or female. There's no Greek or barbarian. No, Greek or Jew, sorry. Nor slave, nor free. No gay, no straight. No married, no single. That we all are one in Christ Jesus. That we are invited home and take steps to follow him. And I have not given everything to Jesus yet, but I'm going to walk with him, continue to follow him. Uh, and I invite us all to do the same. So here are some next steps. Uh, follow the king of grace and truth. Maybe you're exploring the faith. And maybe Jesus scandalized you today, but I can tell you there's, there's no one more loving than Jesus. He... he He's not a bigot. He is the lover of your soul and wants your best. I truly believe that. And then as you follow God, discern how the kingdom of God is informing the following areas of your life. How is the kingdom informing your sexual desires? Discern how it's informing your relationship status and your relational commitments. And then, this is a very important one as well, and we want to know, there's connection cards in the back. You can fill it out and put it in the little box thing. Uh, how can this community be a safe or safer place for you to process? What needs are you having? Because I'm sure this brought up a lot. I'm going to invite the band up, and um, we're going to pray. So, Lord, we, uh, yeah, we come to you again, not with a lot of words, but we come to you for uh for love and wisdom. Uh, we come to you as a, a people who really love one another in this church. And so God, I pray that we would continue to do this and that each other would know each, our, our, each other by our love, that others would know us by our love. And yeah, Lord Jesus, your life is remarkable. Your singleness became like this thing that was celebrated and wonderful because of the movement that you began and marriage became uh, redefined again. So Lord, help us um, to fight for one another, to fight for those who feel like they're not a part of this community or on the outside, that they would be brought in as family. Help us to fight for hurting marriages. Help us, yes, to love our kids, but not to, to place them as the end-all, be-all. There's so much here, God. I, I do pray, God, that people who feel like they're outside would be loved and know that you have space for them. Like you're, you're, you're the one whose home has many rooms, God. So create space for us and do what only you can do. We love you, Jesus, and um, we pray this in your name.